Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Greetings, dear listeners. This is another exciting episode of the Remnant Podcast. I'm a little better rested than I was last week, and we're actually in the studio instead of a uh, cacophonous conference room with Oren Cass. Uh, that's right. There's going to be alliteration this week. And uh, if you're listening to this at, at National Review Online, that's great. But if you could subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Fred's Shrimp, Shracks, Shrimp, Shrimp Shack and Podcasts, that would be great, too. Um, so this week we have not really tied to much of anything, uh, someone we've wanted to have on for a long time and I just wanted to do a second podcast this week. So I basically just grabbed him off the street. We have Michael Strain, who is the vice president or director of something, something at, of economics at AEI. What's your title? Dining services. Yeah. Uh, other than that. Director of economic studies. Director of economic studies. Okay. And so you're like, you're, you're technically a suit here, right? Uh, I wear suits sometimes. No, but I mean like you, your your management. I'm management. Okay. All right. So everyone take that into account uh, when you uh, hear the lack of deference I have for, for Michael here. And so you went to Harvard, right? Cornell. Cornell. Oh, it's it's Voiger who went to Harvard. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Did you go to the part that's Ivy League? Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right. It's split down the middle. Yeah. Because uh, were you uh so for years I've talked about the great Harvard-Cornell rivalry that everyone at Cornell knows about and no one at Harvard does. <laughs> um, everyone at Cornell does know about it. <laughs> um, so we try to keep things relatively civil here, um, but you are free to express yourself in any way um, you wish. But earlier this week, on Monday, we recorded a podcast with Oren Cass on his book. And in part because there was a fatwa um, for this podcast that there be no math, I let some things go. I actually... As I explained to Oren, the soft case for his book, right, the sort of the Yuval Levin interpretation of his book, I'm very, I'm fairly sympathetic to. The hard case for his book uh, makes me want to flip to safety on my rifle. <laughs> and so it depends on, you know, at the margins what lessons or interpretations you take away from it. But But you were part of the elitist neoliberal backlash against his book. So why don't you, uh, you say how you feel about it? Um, I, I, I suppose I was part of that. I, I tried to keep my commentary about the book, um, relatively focused because it is, it is pretty expansive. And I thought that he was, uh, giving short shrift to the importance of GDP growth, um, giving short shrift to the benefits of international trade. And I also, you know, found myself you know, somewhat confused at times by his views on those subjects and kind of how his, you know, policy uh, prescriptions um, uh, reconciled with those views. Uh, 
you know, I think the I think the broader point that we should not, you know, make an idol out of GDP growth and worship it uh, is correct. I think, um, uh, you know, I don't think many people do that. Mm-hmm. I think the broader point that we should think of people uh, holistically, we should think of them as members of the economy, but also as members of their families, members of society at whole, members of religious uh, communities, et cetera, et cetera, is right. I don't think many people are guilty of not doing that, mm-hmm. you know, but it's good to remind people from time to time of those things, and and uh, you know that purpose seems to have been served. Yeah. So one of the reasons why I thought it was interesting that you came out critically against it was that I've always seen you as part of the sort of reformocon. Let's get out of the doctrinaire Reagan 1982 way of framing everything, because like you're in favor of. Are you? I don't want to get it wrong, but you're in favor of some. Socialism? No, no, no. Um, you know, uh, if socialism, the Fabian kind. You know, <laughs> no, no work camps yet. But uh, you're in favor of things like subsidizing people to travel where there's work, right? Sure. And and are you pro wage subsidy? I can't. Sure. Remember. Yeah. Much right? so. so I mean, those are not traditionally. I agree. You know, laissez-faire Cato Institute kind of position. Pro so child tax credit. Right. You know, pro, yeah, so yeah. you're a squish is what I'm saying. I, I spent <laughs> I spent many years being accused of that. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's been it's been interesting for me the last couple of years. I, I uh, you know, kind of went from you know, being this guy who was kind of a, you know, so, and sometimes a, a bad fit in the conservative movement who, you know, many conservatives thought of as, as being a little too squishy and a little too willing to spend money to now all of a sudden being accused of being a you know a Cato Institute libertarian economics type. Yeah, which, and let, let this podcast let me just be clear: this podcast is friends with many, many Cato Institute uh, market fundamentalists. They're wonderful people. Yeah, um, and uh, so talk about that. So, and the squishes are wonderful people too. All right. So this is a recurring theme on this this uh, fully functional podcast uh, that one of my great gripes with the Trumpian moment is that people like you and Yuval and Ramesh and a whole bunch of people who were trying to think creatively, but still sort of applying Reaganite principles to problems in new and creative ways, rather than just replaying the old things over and over again, were kind of denounced as squishes, fellow travelers, uh, uh, running dogs. I think that's the correct term from communist uh, (laughs) theory. Uh, um, Unreconstructed Shackmanites, maybe. Anyway, so and and that because you want to do stuff to help the the working class, right? And then all of a sudden, Trump comes along. He attracts the white working class, not the working class qua working class, right? People always skip a jump there when they say, "Oh, Trump's winning over the working class." No, he's winning over a segment of the working class that are identifies white. And then all of a sudden, you guys are being called the purest neoliberal, outmoded market fundamentalist guys. How fun has that been? It's been great. <laughs> I've, I've really enjoyed it. Like so many things over the last two or three years, it's been it's been, it's been a wonderful treat. Uh, I mean, I you know I think I think that there is um, you know a there's a desire to make public policy sense of the current political moment, and you know good smart people are trying to do that. And I think that you know in many cases there's an overreading mm-hmm. of the moment. And in many cases, there is, I think, uh, uh, you know, there's there's too much of a desire to make policy sense of, of the current moment. So, you know, if you if you held the view that 
populism is here to stay and, you know, in order to be politically viable, the GOP needs to, you know, kind of turn away from free trade and turn toward, you know, excessively interventionist policies and markets and, and you know, kind of talk about, you know, structural socioeconomic problems that are holding people back and, and really make a big deal about these things, then I think some of what's happened has made sense. If you if you think that, that the populist moment is is passing or needs to be resisted, uh, if you think that, that that this populist moment needs to be taken head on and argued with, then you know you're you're not turning away from free trade and, and doing things like that. Um, you know, when you think about this kind of evolution of you know the reform conservatives that you talk about the way that i think about it is uh, you know a few years ago um uh, during the obama administration uh, i think you characterized correctly that there were a bunch of people who thought that the gop needed to update its policy agenda right. um to address some of the realities of 21st century life um the 1980s policy agenda you know kind of individual income tax cuts was were extremely important shrinking the size of government was extremely important uh, uh Right, but on the individual income tax, just to make it clear for listeners, this is a point Ramesh has been making for years. When you cut the top rates for the individual income tax from 70-something to 30-something, it just stands to reason that most of the benefit you would get from cutting that would happen there. And fighting tooth and nail to cut it another three points will not get you nearly the benefit that fighting for other things might – Considering how much political capital you had to waste yeah. on it, and yet that was sort of like the Wall Street Journal position over and oh, over amazing. again. I mean, one of the most important, if not the most important, economic policy debate for years and years and years was whether the top rate should be thirty nine point six or thirty five. Yeah, right. Yeah, which is which is, you know, I mean, I'd rather have thirty five than thirty nine point six, but this is not something to right. to sacrifice every other goal for. Um, and so, you know, there there was a lot of a lot of thinking about, you know, how do we apply conservative principles and dispositions to um, uh, healthcare. How do we apply that to higher education policy? How do we use that uh, to support families? How do we use that to support workers? Uh, you know, in ways that make good public policy sense, and in ways that make good economic sense, um, uh, and in ways that that are you know that are in keeping with principles of personal responsibility and keeping with uh, principles of individual liberty in support of of the free enterprise system. Um, you know, one lesson that I think some people have learned is that laudable as those efforts were, uh, they weren't enough, mm-hmm. and that we need to rethink some of those principles and not just apply them uh, in new and creative ways. And so, what principles do you want to rethink? As I slowly reach for my holster, <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't want to, uh-huh. <laughs> um, but you know, maybe maybe we've been wrong about free trade. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe maybe free trade. Uh, it makes good economic sense, but but maybe um, the costs that uh, are borne by certain communities and certain workers are are just too concentrated and too intense, and and you know we need to uh, back away from from our fidelity to that. You know the kind of you know antiseptic way that some conservatives are talking about that now. Is well, I'm not against free trade. I just think we need to put communities first. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, that sounds an awful lot like you're against free trade. Yeah, uh, and uh, that's fine. You know, it's perfectly reasonable to say that that you know globalization 
will have benefits. It'll have costs. I think the costs outweigh the benefits. But you know, just say that then. Right. That's if that's your view. Uh, it's not my view. Uh, you know. So I so I think you know. In answer to your to your question that you asked a long time ago, I think that uh, that reform conservatism was narrower and more deferential to kind of some of these first principles mm-hmm. than the current wave of you know populist and oh, sure. no, policy that's rethinking yeah, yeah. is I, mis- I misunderstood what you were saying before then okay so and partly it's just it's it's in my head because i was listening to the latest episode of the editors uh the other another national review podcast and they had a great argument mostly between Rihan Salam and David French about the Tucker Carlson thing and I'm glad we're all talking about Tucker yeah i mean it is very strange given how we've had a slew of very serious books that have come out from Warren Cass's to Patrick Deneen's to uh Yoram Hazoni's uh you can find all sorts of very real and serious pieces of of intellectual or academic work that have been making a very similar case and no one thinks it's necessary to debate all that and then Tucker goes on a tirade on his TV show and all of a sudden it is the one issue everyone must opine on. It's a little weird sociologically Um, and I kind of avoided it in part because it took place while I was in Hawaii and I found drinking more um, uh, Mai Tais was just more important than following all of it but I've had to catch up and um, so I just did a I got so angry listening. It was an excellent conversation they had on the editor's podcast, but I got so angry by what no one said on it that I want to get your feedback on it. But first, I, let me just ask you, what did you think of the, the you know, so Marco, Senator Marco Rubio endorsed Tucker's tirade, right, and wrote a piece in The Examiner, uh, taking a glancing blow at, at, at you, um, so what do you think of that? What do you think of the tirade? And then I'll ask you my your opinion about my coming tirade, my my own tirade. You know, I, I, I think what I think what I mean, the, the kind of polite thing to say would be that what Tucker Carlson said, you know, was important and that this is a perspective that the conservative movement needs to hear um, and uh, that it's important to be woke to the, you know, populist frustrations that are out there and that even if he got you know, some things wrong or I disagree with some things. We really need to take this seriously. Um, I won't say that. (laughs) Uh, And, uh, you know, instead I'll say that I think it's ridiculous. And I think this retreat from personal responsibility is embarrassing. You know, I have uh, no misunderstanding about the fact that you know, our lives exist embedded in social structures. Our lives are heavily influenced by economic factors. Uh, and that in, you know, some kind of deep theological uh, or psychological sense, our lives are not our own. But having said that, uh, you know, it's also the case that we're responsible for our choices and that a lot of people make bad choices. And the conservative movement has always been comfortable expressing that viewpoint. Um, you know, the... The working class are not made of candy glass. The working class have agency. Uh, Members of the working class are responsible for their lives and for their decisions. And we should be comfortable acknowledging that. Just like, 
you know, rich people and middle class people and, and everybody else are. So, you know, I think it's I think it, I think it is important to be aware of the effects that changes in the economy have had, you know, not just on the working class, but also on the poor, who I think we should be giving more attention to than the working class. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's important to remember the working class aren't poor. You know, right. The working class are not the most vulnerable members of society. They're not the lowest income members of society. We call them the working class because three quarters of them have jobs, right. uh, et cetera, et cetera. But I think we need to be cognizant of how those changes have affected their lives. I think that we uh, owe the working class good public policy that can provide on ramps to the middle class. Uh, should they should they choose to to take those on ramps, and I think that we need to be aware that our current policies are inadequate, and we need to talk about how to create more opportunity for for both the working class and the poor. But I don't think that you know we should we should say oh well there was globalization and so therefore you know it's okay that you know there's you know all this resentment and grievance. I don't think we should create a politics of victimhood around this group. I mean, there is a weird thing about how conservatives for years were harshly critical of African-Americans who use drugs, saying it was their own personal behavior and personal responsibility matters. And now when white people use drugs, it is because they are victims of the globalists, right? I mean, there's a it's absolutely stunning. Yeah. You know, and I, and I, and I also think just analytically there are a lot of very serious errors in what in what uh Mr. Carlson said and <laughs> and in what people are you know uh, uh resp- in in some of the responses. I mean, you know, maybe some of the blame for this situation rests on policy choices by the evil elites, maybe some of the blame rests on impersonal macroeconomic forces like globalization um but you know there are there are there have been significant changes in our culture um that uh, have accrued to the detriment of of some members of the working class um there are uh bad public policies um that aren't you know driven to benefit the elites that have accrued to the detriment of the working class, like disability insurance, mm-hmm. for example. Uh, you know, so there's a lot omitted. You know, but I also think, I mean, you know, it's just, it's just uh, not the case that globalization is the principal driver of declines in manufacturing employment. Right. It's not the case that globalization is the principal cause of uh, you know some of these uh, Rust Belt towns uh, declining. Um, it's not the case that globalization is the is the is the main driver of of any sort of uh, absence of economic opportunity that members of this group face. It's just wrong. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, in addition to you know retreating from personal responsibility, there seems to be a retreat from just basic analytical accuracy mm-hmm. in in a lot of this conversation. And and that's been, I think, uh, frustrating to a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge, it's, it's, it's a, you pull the string on the, between Ben Sass's shoulder blades and he'll say over and over again, you know, it's immigrants and globalization aren't why a factory employs 10% of the people it did 10 year, or 20 years ago. It's that they have machines that are doing those jobs. I mean, automation, mm-hmm. all those things are just making the workers remain more productive. Okay, so 
and there's just there's a there's a basic absence of 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 the importance of magnitudes here you know so you know look at look at the 20 years you know after you know we began intensively trading with china you know say that we say that that trade with china cost you know 2 million jobs over that time period or something like that um is that a ballpark number yeah that's a reasonable that's a reasonable number now it it a lot of jobs were gained Sure, sure, sure. Because of trade with China as well. Uh, so on net, you know, it was probably closer to a wash. Right. Um, if anything, you know, globalization as a whole has has increased labor demand in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you want to say, okay, you know, we got flooded with Chinese imports and uh, we had to compete with that, and you know, you know, forgetting about all the positive things that that globalization or trade with China did, let's only focus on the negative side of the ledger. You know, let's say there, let's say. Two million jobs, three million jobs, something like that. You know, this averages out to ten thousand jobs a month, mm-hmm. fifteen thousand jobs a month, twenty thousand jobs a month, something, something in, in in that magnitude. You know, last month, five million workers separated from their employer. Every month, three, four, five million workers right. leave their jobs. They quit. They're fired. They're laid off, you know, twenty thousand versus four million. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 you know, we live in a dynamic economy. Every month, four or five million people get hired right. into new jobs too. And you know, when you look at the people who got hired and compare to the people who got fired, you know, we gain you know two thousand jobs on net. Mm-hmm. Two, I'm sorry, two hundred thousand jobs on net. Let's say, but beneath the surface, there's enormous, enormous churn. Right. It's a dynamic economy. So sure, in a given month, you know, twenty thousand people lost their job because of trade with China. You know, but compare that to the four million who got new jobs because of right. whatever. The four million who lost their jobs because of whatever. Uh, you know, don't even focus on the good things that China trade has done. Don't even focus on the good things that globalization has done. You know, this is just this is just the 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 extent to which uh, you know people are not appreciating the basic magnitudes involved yeah. here. Is no, that's a good point. Um, so you touched on it, and I'm going to get to my tirade. Don't worry, but um. I'd forgotten even what your tyrant was going to be about. Yeah, so the the but where I am sympathetic to the Carlson approach is I do think elites have a lot to answer for. The private jets and Well, no, but it's it's but what I cannot stand about this entire conversation and I and I don't mean to signal you out is that there is a there's a certain amount of sort of Marxist labor theory of value to all of it, right? Yeah. Is that that we are defining what, who people are by as 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 the amount of inputs that they put into making widgets, and and for some people they are their jobs. I, to a large extent, a big chunk of my identity is from my job. I'm sure that's true for you. I mean, I know you're a good Catholic and you're a dad, and so we have other slices of identity. It's a big point I make all the time is that you want to have lots of different forms of identity in your life, lots of different sources of meaning. You don't want to put everything into one thing, but the the you know i am totally open to the idea that policymakers made bad decisions somewhere right and i know that they did in plenty of places right but the solution to that is not to let them make more decisions right this is the, where i got into with orrin cass is that he was just we need a different set of it, he sounded sometimes i want to be fair like since we're in this mix of making decisions for how to run the economy we just need different people running the economy in different ways and i don't i just that makes me feel unsafe but where I would want to make indictments of the elites is is purely on the cultural side. You know, um, 
I've been writing the, these columns for 20 years about how people with high levels of social capital promote ideas that are incredibly dangerous to people with low levels of social capital. You know, the classic example I remember was Madonna was named like Supermom or Mom of the Year by People magazine. And in, in that interview or one like it, she admitted that she had never changed a diaper, right? So she personified in my, my you know, youth... Uh, this sort of freewheeling spirit, Papa, don't preach, you know, sort of, if it feels good, do it, kind of, you know, sybaritic, slattern chic. And she sends that signal to a culture where, like, if you're the daughter of a single mom in Trenton, New Jersey, the values that Madonna is communicating to you are really disastrous because an out-of-wedlock birth, a... Uh, dropping out of high school because of it is going to it, – it's not prophecy. It's not determined that it's going to ruin your life. But the chances that your life is going to be much worse off by following that sort of if it feels good, do it BS is so much greater than if Ivanka Trump had. Because Ivanka, rich people with lots of social capital can afford mistakes in a way that people down the socioeconomic ladder cannot – and the elites have been morally bankrupt, the cultural elites, Hollywood, however you want to describe it, in basically saying we have no right to judge, we have no right to impose our values on anybody, bourgeois values are inherently constraining and heteronormative, blah, 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 blah. And that is a disastrous decision. But that's not coming out of Washington. No. You know, that's not about – that's not the neoliberal globalist Davos agenda. That's something completely different. Yep. And so I just think Tucker is kind of looking for his car keys where the light is good on that point. Mm -hmm. Okay, but here's the place I actually wanted to rant. So – Tucker said, apparently, one thing we have to remember is the free market is just a tool, right? Mm -hmm. And so my friends and colleagues at National Review had a great and vigorous and interesting debate about that point and others on the podcast. But no one, including Charlie Cook, who I rely upon to be an upholder of, of, of right and liberty, pointed out that to concede that point is a profound surrender of a cherished conservative position. By all means, and I have a corner post that should be going up this morning as we speak about this. By all means, from the vantage, vantage point of policymakers and think tank eggheads like you, it is perfectly legitimate to say the free market is a tool. How are we going to allocate resources? Where will markets work? Where will they not work? Yada, yada, yada. Totally fine with that. It's a perfectly legitimate perspective. From the perspective of conservative philosophy... The free market isn't just a tool. Economic liberty is like at the center of what we're supposed to believe, right? And so the example I use in the corner post is guns are tools. I mean, they're like literally tools. They're manufactured devices that we put in our hands that we use for specific purposes. They fit the definition of a tool. Show me – imagine Tucker Carlson saying – Guns are just tools and giving no credit to the principle of the right to self-defense. You know, we, we would never do that. You know, Twitter, Facebook, newspapers, magazines, this podcast, they're all basically tools. They're artifacts, manufactured. But at the same time, they are the vehicles by which we express certain principles and, and exercise certain rights like free expression and the First Amendment and the right of the free press. And to concede the idea that the free market is merely a tool just rides completely roughshod over the idea of economic liberty. And, you know, I, I don't think economic liberty is an absolute unconstrainable principle. We all agree that there are places where we can regulate commerce, 
But as the philosopher Robert Nozick liked to say, you know, in a socialist society, capitalist acts between consenting adults would necessarily be banned. And I thought, you know, it, you, ta- you change the context even slightly. And Tucker and almost all of his defenders would agree with me entirely. You know, Tucker, how many segments has he done complaining about sort of Bloombergism of the government, the nanny state telling us that we can't eat certain things or we can't smoke certain things? You know, um, how many times have have these populists insisted that the the wedding cake baker shouldn't be forced to make a cake for a gay wedding? Well, that's commerce. And if you concede the idea that policymakers can, for the good of the whole, ride roughshod over economic liberty because they know what what good economic transactions are for the entire society and others don't. All you're doing is making a right-wing case for nanny statism. And no one has addressed this and no one has expressed what the principal difference between left-wing nanny statism and their right-wing nanny statism is. That's my rant. Yeah, I agree with that. And 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 and, and I would I would even uh, go further. Um you know, life in a market economy is shaped by participation in that economy. And the capitalist system contains many moral properties and it presents challenges to people who live in those systems but it also presents uh, moral opportunities to to people uh, who to live to pursue in those happiness well. as you see it to pursue happiness as you see it but you know so a a a common uh, I think this is on my mind because we just had Christmas mm-hmm. and uh, you know all sorts of you know concerns about whether capitalism has destroyed Christmas due to consumerism, et cetera, et cetera. But you got uh, the stretch Armstrong with the kung fu grip, and so you're happy. I'm very, very happy. Actually, that was a test. GI Joe gets the kung fu. Grip. <laughs> stretch Armstrong can't have a kung fu grip because he's made of rubber. Anyway, go on. He can grip things though. He can tie his arms around stuff, which is really kind. Yeah, but yeah. So. You know, if you put a price tag on everything, then it is easier to equate moral worth with that price tag than it would be in a system uh, of socialism or or some other system where you didn't put a price tag on everything. Uh, That's something that participants in a capitalist system have to guard against. The opportunity to consume more by working harder and working longer uh, invites – not only consumerism, but also greed and and, and other and other other uh, uh, moral bads that members of a capitalist system have to guard against. Uh, but at the same time, capitalism offers many moral goods to people. Economic liberty is certainly one of them. The opportunity to live your life as you see fit, to enter into arrangements that are mutually beneficial without the government stepping in. Uh, but it also allows for people to aspire. Mm-hmm. Because of the opportunities it creates, it allows for uh, people to pursue self-betterment. Um, it allows for uh, people to experience the dignity that comes from productive work. Um, it it allows for you know many many morally good things, uh, and it's not you know it's it's not it's not the same as a lawnmower or mm-hmm. or uh, you know a spade. Yeah, it's an it's a it's a it is a social institution um, that is uh, that touches all aspects of our lives and that invites moral decisions and that shapes moral character in important ways. The same thing is true of GDP growth. You know, one of the things that <clears throat> I found frustrating about some of this, you know, conservative pushback about 
you know, how we need to put, you know, GDP growth in its proper place and we need to put the economy in its proper place and what have you. You know, it completely ignores um, some of the important moral dimensions of economic growth. You know, we know that societies with robust economic growth are better to the poor than societies that aren't. That's an important moral dimension on a, on a social level. But economic growth... They're also better on the environment. I mean, they're better on sure, a lot sure, of things. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, on an individual level, economic growth allows for me to do better without requiring that you do worse. Mm. And that's important because that dynamic pushes against human tendencies toward jealousy, human tendencies toward greed, uh, human tendencies toward selfishness. Uh, economic growth allows for society as a whole to come together and fund the kind of programs that help the poor and that help the working class because there's there's surplus dollars being generated. You know, if we if we were to slow GDP growth down dramatically, it would be a lot harder to fund those sorts of priorities. E- economic growth allows for the kinds of aspirations that I that I talked about earlier, and this is not just something that you know we you know the, the degree to which we're talking about putting economic growth in its place seems to me too casual. There's also you know conservatives have have, have always correctly looked at uh, society in an intergenerational sense. You know that we need to be grateful for the inheritance we received from our from our forefathers. Someone wrote and, a book about that. Anyway, go on. <laughs> <laughs> and that we have an obligation to our children and to our children's children. If somebody had come along in you know 1950 or 1920 and said, you know, we're a little too worried about about growing the economy, we're a little too worried about economic growth, all of our lives would be worse in dramatically important ways. And if you were to, you know, shave, um, you know, half a point off GDP growth, you know, so, you know, we're growing at 2% instead of 2.5%. That sounds like an eggheady kind of thing mm-hmm. that we really shouldn't care about. That has, in, if that's sustained over 30 years or 40 years, that has enormous ramifications. You know, you won't add, you'll add $25,000 to people's income 50 years from now rather than $50,000. Right. You know, somebody's income will will increase by a factor of two instead of by a factor of three. Uh, you know, if your income tripled versus doubled, you would notice it. And and and, and our grandchildren will notice it too. Uh, you know, we need to be thinking about, about our obligations to the next generation. You know, life without antibiotics, life without you know, air travel, life without Star Wars. Yeah, see, see, that's the that's the place I think that has more persuasive power. Because when you put it in financial terms, people's eyes glaze over. If you say, and I, wrote, I think I wrote about this in the book. You know, if you, for this basic argument that the disruptions that come from technology, which is really what a lot of people are actually talking about. You know, it's not globalism, it's not immigration, it's it's how technology unsettles established institutions in interesting and sometimes scary ways. Say so, okay, okay. Let's go back in time and figure out the place where we should have stopped innovation. Right? Is it before antibiotics? Is it before the iPhone? You can make a case about that one. Um, you know, is it before the invention of the airplane? And and if you're going to do that, you have to say it has to it has to have been freeze everything, not just the invention of the airplane or the iPhone, but all of the technological innovations that have. Im- you know, increased longevity, increased public health, increased personal health, and all these kinds of things. And I am open to the idea that God in heaven is looking down and saying, you know, 
it was really 1974 where they went the wrong way with this, <laughs> and that's where they should have frozen things. I don't trust you to make that decision. I don't trust anybody to make that decision. And it's like everybody has just simply forgot Friedrich Hayek's knowledge problem, and they think that they know how to manage this stuff. Now, the Orrin Cass argument, which is that we're already in the business of making some of these decisions, so maybe we can move the needle a little bit in the other direction on some of these questions, I'm open to. I, I'm very... I'm, sim- I'm, I'm quite close to it, but go ahead. Yeah, I'm... I'm, I'm, I'm I, well, no, I'm saying, like, wage subsidies. Mm-hmm. I, oh, sure. I, you, know, I, you know, there are places where you can see the argument, but... So I want to ask this. Um, Before you ask it, what I meant was there's this narrative out there that globalization and automation and the drivers of economic change are primarily policy choices. Right, right, right. right. That argument, I think, is analytically incorrect. No, I agree with that. And also, you often hear, usually from what social scientists call dumber people, that you can kind of like – put the banana in the tailpipe and if you just shave down the GDP, there'll be all these positive things that would come from that, which is insane, right? But so I'm a big advocate of simple rules for complex society, right? And um, what rather than all, you know, I was when I was listening to Orrin Cass and someone was very interesting about, you know, tweaking the ability to export assets in exchange for goods on international trade balances and all this kind of stuff, right? Sounds all very interesting. Also sounds way too clever to me, right? If we're going to, if we think we're going to need to spend a huge pile of money um, in one way or the other, right? I don't know what column on the balance books it comes out of, but that's what we're talking about. Spending a lot of money to make lives better for workers and whatnot. Column Z. Wouldn't the simplest thing just to be do something really simple and tangible like, you know, I let's build a giant coast to coast 10 lane underground highway and just be done with it. Right. I mean, like <laughs> do something the massive infrastructure boondoggle. Right. That you can't that I that Milton Friedman would never countenance whatever. But you're not empowering a bunch of dudes with propeller beanies do these finely granular things about tweaking economic policy at the margins that no one else can understand and no one else can follow. And instead we're just saying sort of, it's sort of like the Ron Paul approach to that. You know, like we're just going to just a giant free and earmark for the country or give every congressman, you know, $2 billion. For, you know, this, this was actually what Devin Nunes back before he had a bit of a started some of his journey. And I, and I used to be good friends with Devin. I don't want to get into all that, but, um, when Obama was proposing his uh, the stimulus, and they wanted to do, you know, what was it, eight hundred billion trillion dollars of all of these granular, clever, we're going to do, we're going to, we're going to spend this through the tax code, we're going to subsidize that, we're going to, you know, uh, you know, uh, play all of these very clever games that no one really understood, but sounded really smart at a think tank panel, maybe not at AI, but at some think tanks, and and his response was. Okay, you think we just, you know, you want the helicopter Ben approach is you just want to drop money on the economy, right? Okay, let's do that. Give every single congressman $2 billion to spend as they wish in their own districts. Some will make rec centers or build bridges. Hard but they to know imagine that, a congressman wanted that policy. Yeah, no, exactly. But <laughs> I actually, it, it's sort of a William F. Buckley Boston phone book argument. Yeah. Uh, if, if all you're doing is trying to go for a Keynesian sugar high, right, why not just do that? Um, and similarly... Rather than increase the power of sort of 
social and economic engineers from Washington who want to manipulate the economy, why not just do some big ticket things? I'm not I'm not necessarily advocating this. I'm asking the question kind of sincerely. Just do some big ticket, obvious things that the money has to be spent here, right? If you're going to do infrastructure, it's got to be spent here. That'll put a lot of people to work that will have an inflationary impact on wages because you're going to be pulling them out of other things that may be economically more beneficial. I mean, that just seems like a much easier and sellable approach than some of the stuff that Orrin Cass was talking about, for example. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, I think that, I think that, that we, need to just, we need to focus on, on kind of analytical accuracy, you uh-huh. know. So with regard to the trade stuff, if, if we want to consume more than we produce, mm-hmm. you know, if, we, if people want to buy more stuff and businesses want to build more stuff than we make here at home, we have to, we have to import mm-hmm. from the rest of the world. And the rest of the world wants money for that. They want they want something. Bastards. You know. <laughs> um, and so, you know, this is why uh, this is why f- foreigners buy bonds, mm-hmm. US government bonds, foreigners invest in US companies. Um, and in return we get to consume more than we produce here at home. Uh, you know, you can mess around with that mm-hmm. uh, process, but like fundamentally you know, the the smartest, pointiest heads with the best shaped eggs are not. You know, you're not gonna you're not gonna change that that kind of fundamental reality. Um, you know, are there things you want to tweak? Maybe there are things you want to tweak. But I think your your general point that you want things to be simple, I think, is is right. One of the reasons why I have been uh, so much in favor of expanding earnings subsidies is because it's 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 really it's simple. really simple. Yeah. You know what's the problem? We think when you say earnings subsidy. You basically mean the EITC. The EITC. Okay. Yeah. You know what's the what's what's the problem? Well, the pro- well, you know, the problem is that we think that too few people are working. That's inherently a normative judgment. Mm-hmm. You know, you can argue that that's not right. right. But if you think that more people should be working, uh, you know, economics one on one. If you tax something, you get less of it. If you subsidize something, you get more of it. You know, let's subsidize people for working. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've done it in the past. We've, there's a lot of evidence that when you do that, more people end up working than otherwise would. You know, if you're targeting this on lower income households and so you're pulling people out of poverty, which is another uh, good goal, you know, very simple, very straightforward. You know, big debate right now about, you know, paid family leave and you see some conservatives getting on board with paid family leave. You know, big debate about, you know, the cost of child care. You see conservatives getting on board with, you know, child care subsidies. You know, to me, this is this is just fundamentally the wrong approach. It's it's too it's too micromanagey. It's too, you know, uh, Washington being clever. It's too, you know, kind mm-hmm. of getting in there with the tweezers. Uh, if the fundamental problem is that um, when somebody has a kid, it's hard for them to finance that. Uh, whether that be taking time off work right after the kid is born, whether that be affording childcare after after you know when the kid is an infant, uh, you know why don't we just give people more money when they have kids? Mm-hmm. We have a child tax credit. You know, make it bigger in the first year of life. Allow pregnant women to get it before their baby is born. You know, make it bigger for all years of life. You know, something. Mm-hmm. But you know, don't try to micromanage the balance sheets of American households right. and say, you know, okay, well, you know, you really need you know sixty percent of your salary for the first three weeks and forty percent of your salary for the next three weeks after your baby is born, and you know, we should pay for this from Social Security, and if we just you know do this and that, then it'll be you know budget neutral. You know, oh well, okay, you know, childcare's you know gotten a lot more expensive, so we you know you know turn the knob here, turn mm-hmm. the knob there. 
yeah, it's much more straightforward. Give people money when they have a kid and let them decide how best to spend that money. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not a you know libertarian economics argument. Sure. Uh, the libertarian economics argument is if you want to have a kid, you should pay for the kid. Right. Uh, but it's also not this – you know, kind of technocratic, micromanagey uh, uh, way of approaching these problems, and you know, it's been—I mean, frankly, it's just been—it's been confusing to mm-hmm. see an increasing amount of purchase for that type of policy uh, among among conservatives in the last couple of years. Yeah, no, it's 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 a it's very difficult to explain to people because you know, I give you a historical analogy. When I started working on my first book, I could not understand why all of these critics of FDR were called right-wingers. And you went and you actually look at what they were saying about FDR, what they were saying were better policies than the New Deal. Not all of them, but a huge number of them were way from the left, right? Father Coughlin was way to FDR's left. Uh, J.T. Flynn, who wrote a column for 10 years for the New Republic called Other People's Money, um, was attacking FDR from the left. And what made them right-wingers was that they were critical of FDR, right? So it had nothing to do with an ideological spectrum. It had to do with a psychological spectrum of uh, the enemy of the good is called a right-winger, and so therefore anybody who's against FDR who is good is a right-winger. You get a similar sort of dynamic today with Trump, where Trump defines what it means to be right-wing or conservative. And so therefore... The left doesn't understand that what what Trump is doing or what is happening under Trump, because I, I think Trump is not orchestrating very much, um, is the Republican Party is moving leftward based upon the metrics that we used to cons- use to define these things. Like that we used two years ago. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's becoming more statist. It's becoming more interventionist. It's becoming more protectionist. And... Um, and this was a point I made under George W. Bush, too. Compassionate conservatism was a giant lurch left. But the way we talk about these things is that the president, when he's a Republican, he defines being an extreme right winger. And so and, – and Republicans do the same thing. When Bill Clinton was in office, one of the reasons why Republicans hated him so much was that he was stealing so much of the Republican playbook. He was for school uniforms and he was for reforming welfare and um, – Budgets. Yeah, and, and, and balanced budgets and – um, and so it's very frustrating for me. You know, it's one of the reasons why this podcast is called The Remnant. <laughs> you know, is that uh, how many of us are there? I'm just making the exact same arguments that all of my former colleagues and friends agreed with five freaking minutes ago. And and so that's my problem with the sort of mark. The market is only a tool, right? The left has been trying to make political and moral arguments sound like economic decisions in policymaking. For a hundred years, right? From the certainly the New Deal. What is Alexandria Ocasio Cortez's Green New Deal is not an economic argument. It is a moral vision, a Rousseauian vision about what our country should look like, yada yada yada. And but because we have this rule that we have to couch these things in language that sounds economic, we talk about it as if it's an economic decision. It's not. It's a moral decision. And she wants to regulate the economy in ways that I think are profoundly idiotic, claiming that it's an economic argument. And that's what Tucker's talk about, you know, the market is only a tool boils down to is it's basically saying I have normative judgments about what our society should look like. I am going to regulate them under the color of authority of economics when really I am making just a grotesque or brazen political appeal. 
And that's what the immigration argument is like. It's what all these arguments are like. And I want to hear someone explain to me how we dis- how we distinguish between what people call an economic argument and a political argument. And uh, you don't hear it from anybody. Instead, what we're getting is a grand convergence of the two parties, which is just sort of leaving people like you and me as detritus on the beach when the when the tide goes out. I'm sorry, another rant. I, I, <laughs> all right, so I want to switch gears, unless you want to respond to that, which is absolutely fine. I um, agree. Okay. Uh, not only are you a wise man, you're a powerful man. Um, you said something at lunch yesterday. I returned to the AI lunch table the first time in a long time, and someone asked about some pointy-headed nerdery that you had just issued, some study. Someone asked you, which you can talk about, it's fine by me, but someone asked you, uh, are you talking about correlation or have you demonstrated causation? And you blithely... And and almost monarch- monarchically dismissed this uh, false dichotomy between causation and correlation, which I thought was really interesting. Do you actually believe it? And what do you mean by that? Well, um, I think the you know the the issue of of you know x causing y uh, is actually a pretty loaded philosophical issue mm-hmm. um, with you know. Serious implications for epistemology and serious implications for for uh, ontology and, and and all sorts of things. So, in the in the you know. well, well, there's no math here. We are happy to talk about epistemology and ontology <laughs> and phenomenology and any of those kinds of things. So, have at it. <laughs> you know, it's 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 uh, uh, you know. So let me maybe let me start at the other end of the mm-hmm. of the of the of the pig. Uh, it is common to hear economists and common to hear social scientists and increasingly common to hear to hear journalists mm. you know talk about how you know this study isn't just a correlation this study shows that x causes y mm. you know uh, uh or that x doesn't cause y um uh, and you know there is this um perception that over the last you know i don't know say i guess 15 or 20 years, you know, that recently, that applied statisticians and social scientists and economists have have figured out how to show that X causes Y. You know, when I think of, of causation, I think that X should if, – if you want to say X causes Y, then X needs to cause Y every single time you do it. Uh, you know, you take a glass of water, you put it in uh, a room that is uh, 32 degrees Fahrenheit, and it will solidify. Mm-hmm. It will turn it, it will turn into ice. So, you know, I'm comfortable saying that that the temperature causes the water to turn into ice. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, you know, we've we've kind of. You know, in in science, we've moved away from a deterministic understanding of the universe toward a probabilistic understanding of the universe. And you know, I imagine that that a physicist would tell me that there's actually a distribution around that temperature range, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So maybe maybe that's not even right anymore. Right. But that's well, you that's, have to describe other exogenous or other uh, relative variables like the barometric pressure or the saline content of the water. Exactly. But holding all these things constant, X causes Y. I think that's right. You know, and so and so there's been this. There's been this attempt in the social sciences to to have something analogous to that, and uh, you know it is it is very difficult in economics to hold all else constant, uh, to hold the saline content constant, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, if you want to say, you know, when the minimum wage goes up, does employment go down? 
you know, does a minimum wage increase cause a reduction in employment? You know, just think about the number of things you have to hold constant in order to in order to make that comparison. You know, you have to hold constant, you know, the kind of broader economic effects. You have to hold constant the other wages in the surrounding area. You have to hold constant the characteristics of the workers that you're looking at. You have to know about their ability. You have to know about their ambition. You have to know about their professionalism. You have to know about their emotional state. You have to know about how long they've been to school. You have to know about their previous work history, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so it is extremely difficult to hold these things to hold these things constant. Uh, and I think that you know you could argue that uh, that economics has gotten better at using statistics and using data to hold all else constant. You know, maybe it has, maybe it hasn't. There's actually a, a lot of room for debate about that point. But I think it's certainly not the case that uh, economics has gotten to the point where where it's able to hold Allel's constant in the way that a physicist is when trying to figure out whether the water turns into ice at 32 degrees Fahrenheit. And so I think that uh, the most charitable interpretation to this kind of rhetoric about, oh, that's not a correlation, that's causation, is that uh, causation in that in that context is shorthand for stating that the study in question applied – the most cutting-edge, state-of-the-art statistical tools to the highest quality data in a way that is able to hold Allel's constant better than social science research was in the 1980s or 1990s, but that is still uh, light years away from what a physicist or a chemist can do in the lab. A less charitable interpretation is that when uh, that rhetoric is deployed, it is uh, you know either evidence of a kind of shocking lack of uh, philosophical grounding on the part of the economist, social scientist, or journalist, or it is uh, a rhetorical device to convince people that what you've done is more important and more conclusive than it actually is. Okay, I find that all actually. Surprisingly interesting. Uh, in the sense, no, I, I find the sociology of of various professions really, really sort of interesting. You know, the the sort of the shibboleths and uh, um, uh, and other shorthands that that professionals have to signal where they're coming from. You know, I remember years ago, I guess it was in college. There was such a split. I'm going to forget the dividing line, but there was such a split among professional philosophers in academia about um, sort of the – call it – I'm sure it's wrong – the sort of Popperian sort of logic as math approach and the, I don't know, Heideggerian or mm-hmm. hus- Husserlian you know, approach that on like the GMATs at certain schools, the lower you scored, the better a candidate you were <laughs> because the GMATs were in one school versus another. Um, I find all that stuff kind of fascinating. But um, – but surely, but you, so you, but you, so you, what you are making there is a, you are indicting, um, the, the the culture of social scientists when you say you don't believe that there's a difference between correlation and causation, right? You are not, in fact, saying that there isn't a difference between correlation and causation. It's not a, it's not an ontological point, right? You actually do believe that there can be 
observable causation even in social sciences or or not um you know i don't i don't think you even have to have to get to the point where you're where you're debating ontology uh, you know i think the the question the, the, i think it, maybe a way to think about the question is is it the case that one study is able to hold all else constant better than another study in trying to examine whether x drives changes in y surely the answer is yes mm-hmm. uh, surely the answer is yes is the current state of social science uh, such that the ability to hold all else constant has crossed a threshold where we're no longer looking at very sophisticated correlations that do hold a lot of things constant mm-hmm. but that still uh, don't hold enough constant that we need to think of them as correlations and we can and we've crossed that threshold to where we can start thinking about it as causation based on a reasonable ontological assessment of what counts as causation i think the answer is no okay so do you think there's any such thing as an economic law in the way that there's the law of thermodynamics or that kind of stuff uh no Okay. Um, do you think there are any? Maybe the closest thing you could get is um, incentives matter or something. <laughs> incentives matter certainly. You know, maybe the law of demand that as the price of something increases, uh, fewer and fewer uh, people in the market will purchase that mm-hmm. object. You know, if the price of milk goes up, less milk will be purchased. If the if the price of, of, of shoes go up, there'll be more people going around barefoot. Um, but you know, think about think about that, right? That is that is a directional statement. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is absolutely no use of magnitudes. Right, right, you know, right, right. Uh, uh, There's no answer to the question. It's not an iron law, right? It's falsifiable in countless that's right. circumstances. Yeah, yeah. Right? In, in addition to there not being a magnitude, it's also the case that sometimes that's not true. Right. You know, we know, you know. The, so is there anything, would you say is there anything in economics that is never not true? In the way that there is in physics? No. Okay. Because humans are weird. Humans are weird and context matters. Yeah. Um, humans are weird, context matters. And, you know, I mean, this actually, interestingly, or maybe not interestingly, but this this actually... The uh, listeners will be the judge. <laughs> it relates back to what we were talking about earlier. You know, uh, markets uh, are embedded in a social context. True. And market behavior is influenced by non-market factors. And so for, uh, you know, for there to be laws of economics that are comparable to the laws of thermodynamics or that are comparable to kind of laws of the physical universe, uh, you know, that social context would have to be pretty constant across right. time and across across different societies. And the way that those social factors influence market behavior would have to be pretty constant yeah. across society. And they're not. I mean – And they're obviously not. Right. I mean that's a big part of my argument in my book is that capitalism is unnatural. Is that something that we – maybe not designed by – Human will, but that is a manu- is an artificial constructed thing over many generations that emerges from a cohort of moral, philosophical, religious patterns of behavior that were not designed on a drawing board, but were sort of from lived experience, largely because the English were weird. Um, <laughs> because the English were weird, and 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 the Protestant Reformation allowed for the monasteries to be dissolved, and because in the, like the seventh century. They banned the ability to marry your cousin in England, um, which actually was a big deal. A helpful but, innovation. Um, all right. So we're going to wrap this up. But quick question. Um, what – I'm going to back up. So I did a podcast with – two questions. One, because I'm obsessed with this. I feel like my parents are getting divorced. I asked Tyler Cowen in a 
audio cha- audio challenged podcast about this, and he gave me an answer that I like to hear. But so one of the things that uh, I was obsessed with in working on my book was this was was the, these arguments about where capitalism comes from, right? And I ultimately concluded nobody knows, which is not to say there aren't a lot of good theories, but there's no consensus on it, right? But the two ones I found most compelling were from basically Douglas North and the sort of institutional argument about economics, right? Which uh, I can never pronounce his name, Damon Asimologu. Darren Asimoglu. Yeah. And, uh, or Daron Asimoglu. Daron, yeah. And, and Robinson and Why Nations Fail, right? It's very much an institutional argument. Not so you know, institutional in terms of rules and all the rest, right? And then there's the Deirdre McCloskey argument, which is it's all about ideals, rhetoric, um, uh, the sort of the story that we tell ourselves about ourselves that comes out of the Enlightenment period, but is not necessarily just straight from the Enlightenment. Sorry, Steven Pinker. Now, I like Deidre McCloskey a lot. I've learned an enormous amount from her. Um, I would consider her a friend. She is not a fan of Douglas North, and she insists that their two theories of where capitalism comes from are utterly incompatible. <laughs> and I cannot get my head around why are they utterly incompatible. I asked I asked Tyler Callen and he says they're not incompatible. They're just they're completely compatible. That's sort of a both and not an either or thing. Where do you come down on this question? Yeah, I think they're I I think they're compatible as well. I mean, I think it's important to to distinguish the question of where capitalism comes from and what so that's question one. Where where's capitalism? When I would say capitalism, it's shorthand for liberal democratic capitalism. Yeah, exactly, right. exactly. So so question one: Where does liberal democratic capitalism come from? Question two: What sparked the industrial revolution? Why did it happen? Where it happened? And uh, why did it kind of drive global growth and catch fire? Those are two different yeah. questions, I think. Um, and uh, I think that, that those two questions often get conflated. Sure, no, that's fair. Um, There's also a third question I think is hugely important: is that why was it allowed to last? Yeah, right. Because you had huge spikes in economic growth and really economic freedom in various places, like the Republic of Venice. You had it in China, the technological innovation. But then the powers that be, the sort of guilds and the throne or altar. Uh, felt threatened by innovation, and so they killed it. Yeah. And why was it allowed to escape and run free after the Industrial Revolution is also, I think, a really important. I think it is too, and 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 it it has its answer has uh, instructive value to today. You know, the Jews, for example. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but you know, when Charles Dickens was writing his novels, he was he was describing the world he lived in. When uh, Marx and Engels wrote that all that is solid melts into air, they were they were looking out their window yeah. and seeing the effects of the early stage of the Industrial Revolution. He, uh, Marx was hugely influenced by Dickens, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was there was there was enormous dislocation that was caused by by the Industrial Revolution. Um, and it, it, it spewed great literature. It spewed uh, great social science that, that went on to be, you know, to have terrible consequences. And also a lot of air pollution. And a lot of air pollution, yep. a great deal of air pollution. We are living through a period of, of disruption right now, and we have been for, for, for a while. You know, we have to be careful not to overreact and snuff it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 you know again that you know it seems to be like there's there's some pushback against that. A great deal. Anyway, um, I was going to ask a final question, but that's probably a more poetic place to end this. Michael Strain, thank you very much for doing this. Thank you. Really appreciate it, and uh, I hope to have you on again. I'd love to come back. All right.
So uh, Michael Strain is left, and um, I don't know why I feel so compelled to overcompensate for the lack of wonkery at the end of 2018 to do so much wonkery in 2019. But, you know, I, I the squeaky wheels get the grease, and everybody on Twitter was giving me a hard time for not being not staying on the wonk stuff. So we've I think we've checked that box for a little while. Not just wonkery, but schizophrenic wonkery. You have... Uh, you you invite someone in, and then for one episode, and then then in the next episode, you invite one of their most prominent critics. Yeah. Well, there are many rooms in the mansion of conservatism and this podcast, and um, that was actually one of the you know when I uh, came up with the idea for the corner, the group blog at National Review. The whole point was not the whole point, but a big part of it was to demonstrate that there's a lot of ideological heterogeneity on the right. Alas, I think there's maybe too much these days, but that's a different conversation. And so I have no problem. I mean, people complain that we don't have left-wingers on here. We're going to get some left-wingers. We've been talking about that. We're going to do all sorts of interesting new things. But I think it's perfectly fine to have... Uh, I would I would also like to, at some point, get people who disagree with each other to show up at the same time. And just <laughs> drop the hockey puck and move away. What do you think of all that? I know it's a little more awkward because you see him around the building all the time, so you can't really, like, you know completely throw Michael under the bus, but do you have any thoughts about the conversation? Oh, I'm, I'm just still... I, I, I think it's funny. I, I was actually in favor, if it had been possible, of getting those two in the same room. Yeah. Orrin Cass and Michael Strain, but they they didn't... I don't know. We should have asked Michael Strain if his spider sense was tingling when Orrin Cass was in here. In the building, yeah. No, um, I know. If he, had, if he felt a disturbance in the force or something. And I wanted to ask... Uh, Strain to explain a whole bunch of terms. He once explained to me what heteroskinasticity is, uh, and I don't think you said that correctly. But I don't know. Uh, I probably didn't, but I'm not going to try again. Yeah, heterostochio something. Heterostochasticity. Maybe that's it. Heterostochasticity. Yeah, yeah, something like that. And it 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 basically means that you know you didn't use enough blood in your blood magic or something. <laughs> um, so. Uh, I'm off to Florida tomorrow for an AI conference thing, and I'm going to bring my daughter with me, which is very exciting. Um, but next week, we're going to have Jonathan Last on the show, which we were supposed to do a while ago. Mm-hmm. But then there was there was some turmoil at the Weekly Standard um, that mitigated against it. Um, and militated. Militated. That's it, mitigated? Yeah, whatever. Barefoot erotica. Uh, <laughs> and um, all right, whatever. And we should probably do some punditry at some point on here, particularly given that the government is going to be shut down for the rest of our lives, or at least part of it is. The Libertarians finally won. I just recorded. Uh, they asked me to be on Diane Reem's podcast, uh, which is put out by NPR. That should be out tomorrow if people want to check it out. And um, anything else that we need to discuss? Anything you know? Well, have that's... you put have you put your uh, signed Tolkien book in a safe place? As of right now, it's still well. I, I shouldn't say where it is. Actually, <laughs> um, it is safe. It's not like on the kitchen. I, it is secret. It is safe. Okay. Uh, people who know will know what I mean by that. Um, but yeah, it's it's funny that I have it's funny that I have this extremely valuable material object that I'm thinking about all the time. <laughs> um, it's like I, I. It sounds vaguely familiar. That situation. Yeah, yeah. And, and when you put it in your hand, you turn invisible. Yeah. Um, okay. So but something we should discuss: casting for the Dune movie continues apace. Yeah, I saw that. Um, Stellan, how do you pronounce his Skarsgård. name? Skarsgård. Yeah, is going to play Baron Harkonnen. Uh huh. 
Could work. Could work. I mean, um, I think actually a very similar actor who I often confuse for him would be slightly better. I can't remember his name, but he was the villain in John Wick uh, and the villain in Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. I don't know his name, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he would be slightly better. But yeah, I, hope he, I think that works. I mean, they're going to have to do something about the morbid obesity that I associate with Baron Harkonnen. Well, the, the the actor who played him in the the 84 Dune was not morbidly obese either, I don't think. Was it, was it Charles? Who was it? Charles Durham? No, I don't remember his name. He's one of the... The less famous names of that stacked, bizarrely stacked cast, at least three of whom. So the way my dream for this movie is that you put Patrick Stewart, Max von Sydow, and Brad Dourif in the same roles they played in the 84 movie. Because they all, they could play all the same ones. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And then make Kyle MacLachlan, uh Duke Leto, the father. The father. Yes. Interesting. Yeah, but uh, I don't know if this is going to make someone mad at me. I think Kyle MacLachlan is a bad actor. Um, who basically plays a stoned, flat-faced, dead-eyed uh, person in every role that he plays. Well, in <laughs> on Arrakis, there are literally drugs in the air. So, uh huh. But what's your excuse for Twin Peaks? <laughs> um, well, there are all sorts of supernatural blue, shenanigans going velvet. on um, uh, in in uh, in Twin Peaks with him. So, um, blue velvet. Uh, I don't know. Blame maybe some gas leaked out of Dennis Hopper's apparatus. Possible, possible. So, I do not have high hopes for the movie. I do not think it lends itself well to the cinema- cinematic. They're splitting adaptation. it in half, though. Uh huh. And Denis Villeneuve is directing. That is the correct pronunciation of his name. He has like eight syllables. If you just read his name, but he's French, so that there's only three of them or something pronounced. Interesting. And I say that generously. Um, did you see Aquaman? No. Will you see Aquaman? No, no. Yeah. Even though I'm, I really, I've been obsessed with Atlantis for a long time, and I love, I'm also obsessed with giant squids, and I think this movie has both of those things. But even so, I'm, I'm just not, I gave up on the DC Extended Universe, which the DC Extended Universe has also given up on itself, but Aquaman is succeeding, so I don't know what that means. Yeah, so, so the problem I have with, Aquaman is or it's twofold. One is it is the problem that I have with DC Comics generally is that it's cartoonish and that the motivations of the characters are cartoonish and they're not fully formed human beings. That's why again, Batman is the is the best DC character because he actually is a refugee from the Marvel Universe and should be in the Marvel Universe which actually has stories of flawed people dealing with problems. Aquaman is really cartoonish. The second problem I have is that the whole point of doing things as live action is to make them seem or appear to be plausible. Like this is what it would look like if there were really superheroes in the world with superpowers, right? And there is so much ridiculous physics-defying CGI in this movie. Like there's this giant battle uh sort of gladiatorial battle in one scene where they're fighting just above live molten lava nice on the bottom of the ocean floor right and um you know my daughter asked me afterwards is there really like lava at the bottom of the ocean i was like yes there is the problem is is that my understanding is that wherever lava interacts with ocean water it creates giant plumes 
of essentially underwater steam and bubbles. And instead, they make it seem like you could be two inches away from hot rivers of molten lava, and there's no distortion to the water. Everyone can talk perfectly audibly underwater. It is, it's a live-action cartoon. And so when Dave, our colleague and my colleague and friend David French gushes over this, um, it makes me sort of question his judgment about all sorts of things because the plot is bad. The dialogue is, is to use a technical term, really bad. And, um, and the special effects don't make you feel like you're watching something that could happen. It would have been a better movie as a cartoon than as a live-action thing. Um, that said, the guy who plays Aquaman, um, whatever his name is. Jason Momoa. Yeah, he's great. I mean, uh, he's fun. He owns the screen. He's very much like Dwayne Johnson in that way. You just, like, when he's on the screen, you want to look at him. He's, he really holds it. Or, like, Denzel Washington is really good about that. But, um, like, for m- my daughter, we came out of that seeing that movie, and she was just like, oh, my God, that was dumb. And um, I understand that. David French is a big kid and that he likes to see frickin' sharks with lasers fighting each other, but it was, I thought, a disappointment. Um, I think that you have too high expectations for what comic book movies should be. I think it, and I think it's bad that we are, that there are now adults who want their, want their comic book movies to be realistic. They're meant for children. I think, and I, I've been guilty of this. I've, Not I've ones with R rating, right? I mean, it's so like it Deadpool. It doesn't have an R rating. No, I know, but Deadpool does. Oh, well, they right? shouldn't. I, I don't think, I think the, I think that's bad too. I think. I do too. The I, idea for diff- that, completely different reasons. I think. Yeah, that the idea that we're trying, that 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 the comic book has morphed in that sense into like an, a supposedly adult genre. It says more about our, our, our understanding of what it means to be an adult than anything else. I agree. Um, so I, I, I'm not interested in Aquaman, but I think. I don't know. I think 12-year-old boys should be <laughs> interested in it, but uh if it yeah, does, no, that's true. If it doesn't satisfy uh adult males or with children, that's that's fine. It never should it I don't I don't think the, the that kind of movie is meant to uh and it shouldn't be meant to. Adult adult men should find other things to do with their lives. There are too many a friend of mine is working on an article about this, and I, this is deeply an admission against interest in saying this. But I, I think certain aspects of nerd culture have have taken root in our society in a way that has made being a nerd mainstream. Mm-hmm. Uh, like '80s movies, the jocks ruled, but now the nerds have taken over. No, there's something to that. It's funny. Um, in Parks and Rec, uh, the Ben character—I can't remember his last name—and it doesn't really matter—is constantly being. Um, made fun of by Aziz Azari, uh-huh. that's how you say it, and uh, he's constantly being called a nerd, and the Ben character keeps saying, Star Wars is not nerdy, it's entirely mainstream, millions of people see it, and it's true, there's been this sort of mainstreaming of nerd culture in the sense that you used to, when I was in high school, or certainly grade school and all that kind of stuff, This the nerdy stuff that you followed was the stuff that the cool kids didn't really follow and uh-huh. that you um kind of only admitted to fellow friends fellow nerds like you know like christians in ancient rome kind of thing that you were in on this stuff and now it's completely mainstream and 
But I'm not sure that like sports has become nerdy by any stretch of the. Well, actually, it kind of has. I mean, the the quants have moved in, like yeah, yeah, the yeah. the Moneyball. Uh, yes, but I mean, it, sports is still mainstream. That's true. Yeah, the Super Bowl is as mainstream as Star Wars. It's not a weird sort of. I mean, it's it's not like ESPN, the Ocho. Yeah, that's true. There hasn't been a complete flip of one from the other. Although people are more sedentary than they used to be and less active. True. Um, so maybe in that sense, yes. But um, but for example, so I think that a lot of this comes from like now the people who were the nerds, like in real life, the nerds that were being mocked in these '80s movies, uh, got money, got positions of power, became screenwriters, <laughs> and so like. I'm convinced that the people who created Stranger Things were played Dungeons and Dragons in the '80s. Oh yeah, and now and so now they're now that they're screenwriters or uh, they can put this into things that they create and mainstream them. And now you have people. I know people my age who are suddenly into Dungeons and Dragons, like yeah. people who aren't who, who don't necessarily have other aspects, who don't have the other. Uh, character markers that would suggest an interest in that, but suddenly they're like, "Oh, yeah, D and D night, let's go." Hmm. Um, I, I think that's a Stranger Things adjacent phenomenon, but also part of this other. Yeah, I mean, definitely the people who wrote Stranger Things were akin to the kids from Weird Science with bras on their head creating a woman. Right? <laughs> um, that was Weird Science, was it? Kelly LeBrock. Yeah, yeah. and Robert Downey Jr. is in that too, right? He is. He is. He's also in Back to School. Mm-hmm. Robert Downey Jr. actually play, was kind of Brat Packy for a while, and then he kind of toughened up in prison. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So uh, that's going to lead me into a whole slew of jokes about things I shouldn't joke about. So um, thanks, to everybody, for listening. Uh, we're going to – again, I don't want to be cryptic, but I have some interesting ideas for the future. Please subscribe. Please tell people to subscribe. As of as of yesterday, we were not back in the top 200 on iTunes, and we are still just shy of 3,000 reviews on iTunes. Um, so your support is really appreciated. And I don't know, well, other than Jonathan Last, I don't know what else we're going to be doing in the next week or so. But we'll figure all that out. I I did get a commitment from George Will to come on. So if you want to think about your uh, what that would look like, um, you probably look like George Will. Yes, but I just mean like what the flow of the conversation would look like. Um, and, uh, again, thanks for tuning in and I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.